Welcome to the Sisters in Crime Writers Podcast. Everyone has a unique writing journey, so join us for conversations about those journeys from the writers themselves. is the executive director of Sisters in Crime, delighted to welcome Stephanie Gale to the podcast today. Stephanie is the vice president of the National Board of Sisters in Crime at the time of this recording, which is June 2021. That means she's the incoming president for the 2021-2022 year. She wrote the Thomas Lynch Mystery Series, which starts with Idle Threats. She also co-created the Boston Meeting Series, Craft on Draft. We'll talk more about that. A graduate of Smith College, Stephanie works at MIT doing finance stuff for people too smart to do basic math. Welcome to the podcast, Stephanie. Thank you. I'm so happy to talk to you about um, writing, because usually you and I, uh, lately in our roles, are talking more about governance and (laughs) sisters in crime, national and goals and things like that, which are all important and great conversations. And we'll talk about sisters in crime a little bit later. But, um, you know, I want to spotlight and highlight that you're also a writer who who has written a series and, and you know, has and and created this reading series. Um, And so I'm looking forward to the conversation about writing. Me too. Um, When, when did you first know that you wanted to be a writer? That's a tough one because I think I wanted to be a lot of things growing up. I mean, writer was definitely high up there, but at various times, so was astronaut. (laughs) so was um cartoonist I found in an old like report card um but I do strongly remember standing in my elementary school library I had just read C.S. Lewis's The Lion The Witch and the Wardrobe and I thought I want to do this and I said to myself if I ever get published I will dedicate my first book to C.S. Lewis And I did in an incredibly nerdy move. Um, My very first novel, My Summer of Southern Discomfort, published by uh, William Morrow. It just says to CSL because I didn't want to out myself quite so poor (laughs) as such a nerd. But you, you you heard it here first. That's actually who it's dedicated to. So age 10. <laughs> so I love that you were a nerd from way back. Yeah. Um, but also what a lovely um reflection on a, a book and a series that meant a lot to you as it did to so many people. That that series really opened up worlds of imagination. It did, and for a heathen child such as myself, when it was pointed out to me, the Christian allegories, <laughs> I was taken aback. I was like, oh, that had never occurred to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. C.S. Lewis and I have a lot in common and a lot of differences. <laughs> so Aslan won't be showing up in any of your well, novels. I don't know how forward. strong his estate is. I'm not going to run the risk. <laughs> exactly. I bet it's pretty strong. I bet it's pretty strong. 
Um, and so, you know, you, you read, you met that. And you're, when you talked about the book that you dedicated to him, that's an, a non-crime book. Yes. Correct? It's just, it's just fiction. Although as you know, publishing will decide to call it 16 different things. So it was women's right. fiction because it it featured a woman protagonist. It was commercial fiction because they wanted to sell copies. In other places, I did see it as a legal thriller because it does um, involve a criminal law case. So, mm-hmm. um, but it was not what I would call a mystery. There's never any uh, uncertainty about who did what. And it's a standalone. It is a standalone. People asked me to write a sequel, and I said, no, thank you very much. And so can we talk about, uh, you know, when you, before you, we're going to talk about your publishing journey, but, you know, what was your process in figuring out the mechanics of being a writer? So, you know, you could say you want to be an astronaut, but Mm -hmm. it's actually doing the training and doing everything else that makes you the astronaut. When did you say, you know, how did you get the mechanics together to actually write that book? So I actually wrote my first novel in college. A lot of my friends went abroad their junior year and I couldn't really afford to do that. Um, and I'm, I was a little more hesitant, I think, than my peers about international travel. So I stayed at Smith college and I took advantage of my free time. And I just thought, I'm going to see if I can write a whole story start to finish that's this long and it turned out it could. Now it was a very bad novel that I years later realized is an incredible ripoff of Josephine Tay's Brat Farrar, which is a lovely book. Um, <laughs> but it proved to me that I could do it. Um, and it also showed me when I had time to look back at it through a critical lens, everything that was wrong with it. And there were some very rookie mistakes like um, using uh, name identifiers after like every bit of dialogue. Julie said, Stephanie said, Julie said, yeah. Stephanie said, you don't need to do that. In fact, you yeah. don't need cheese. Um, she said, you don't need that. Uh, so it was incredibly useful as a mechanic for like saying, I can do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can probably do it better. I think that that's a very typical um process, right, is to write that first novel to understand how to write a novel. Yes. Um, Because you can learn, but until you do it, it, it's still opaque. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And finishing that novel uh, is is usually a journey that you know, I, I've heard numbers like 97% of people don't actually do. They don't finish the novel. They start writing. I really um, hope that those 97 people, like 97% only got to page three. <laughs> it would break my heart to think that they got within spitting distance of an ending and just went, eh. Yeah. Well, it's the ending. You know, I think it, it was Leonardo da Vinci. I just was reading a quote today that said, you don't finish art, you abandon it. And so I think that some people to wrap it up and say, I'm done is a leap of faith Mm -hmm. that maybe they don't take, or they don't have the confidence to say, Oh, I'm actually done (laughs) with this novel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so how you wrote this novel, um, and had that whole experience. I mean, William Morrow's a a significant publisher. Mm -hmm. Um, and then how long after that did you start your series? I think it was honestly like eight years. Um, I had set out to write a different second book 
after the first. And then I joined, um, there's a wonderful Boston writing organization called Grub Street. And they had started Mm -hmm. a new program called the Novel Incubator. And it was aimed at people who had written a full novel manuscript and wanted to be in a small group of 10, well, nine students, nine other students, 10 students total, two instructors. And the idea was that this was for novelists. This wasn't for short story writers. It wasn't for poets. You would just work on your novel, which is still kind of rare in MFA programs. So I had started working on this mystery novel on the side, and I decided that that was the novel that I would bring to the novel incubator. And I'm I'm really glad I did. So during that, like, nine months, I basically took that novel apart and rewrote it twice in full. Because... If I'm if I know this program because I know somebody else who went through it, part of it's working on the manuscript. Yep. Part of it's learning the business. True. And of I actually, how to launch the book. Yeah, and I had a little bit of an insight. So the thing was, I'd already had a novel, and when I applied, I actually checked with the artistic director Chris Castellani that that was okay to apply. I said, Chris. I've had a novel published, but I'd really still like to be in this program. And he said, That's fine. He said, Second books are often harder. And I yeah. thought, Oh. Yes. Yes, they are, Chris. So, um, so the business side, like, you know, with all of one book under my belt, I felt like, oh yeah, I know things. (laughs) Look at me. So I felt a little less, I I was at least a little less anxious than my peers. Was that deserved? Probably not. Um, Mm -hmm. but the writing, I will say I learned so much and almost kind of wished I could take my first novel back because, there and, and I will say having nine other people who know your novel that intimately is a blessing I will probably never have again. Mm-hmm. And I was so grateful for that experience. Developing your craft over time, it's ongoing. I mean, these conversations I'm having with writers, uh, I'm learning so much about their their process and their learning. But uh, you'd already written a novel, but you're saying that the, this incubator also taught you things. So what... Was it a depth, you know, going deeper into the craft or was it, you know, mind blowing like, oh, <laughs> oh you know, that that affected your process? You know, did it, it you know, did you go from a pantser to a plotter or, or that sort of thing? Oh, no, I'll pants until I die. Um, <laughs> I think it was a lot of, I don't want to say little things because they weren't little things, but it was deconstructing things in a way that I hadn't critically done. Like, you know, taking a scene apart, what makes a scene a scene, what makes, you know, a beat, a beat, what, um, and, and honestly, some of it was academic a little bit. What, what's an inciting incident? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, how do you say denouement, (laughs) (laughs) which it turns out is not denouement. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> surprise but in kindness to yourself if those that's a word that unless you've heard somebody say it how would you know how it's said oh i recently heard soup song for the first time and let me tell you how grateful i was to have never encountered that in a conversation in which i had to say it first hard c <laughs> um so yeah the program i think it it was a lot of things it was it was also being told that i had to think about setting because setting is one of those things i don't love. It's important to me, but I don't like to kind of drown in it. Um, and, and it was being held accountable. So there is something about having nine people looking at your manuscript and two instructors. They don't let you get away with bullshit. 
and Mm -hmm. left to my own devices, I would probably let myself get away with more. So it was being Mm -hmm. told like, no, you, you got to work on that. Like that character is not fully developed or we don't believe that you have to get us to believe it. So they weren't letting you get away with anything. Right. Yeah. That's great. (laughs) (laughs) and did you find so that's what what your first how your first thomas lynch book was was launched or yeah so i went to my agent and i said i know you're expecting me to come back with a different draft of this book that i've already sent you and haven't been working on but i wrote this other book in this program and i think it's stronger than my my second book and so would you take a look at this and he did not care for it at all to the point where he had someone else at the agency look at it and I don't think that person liked it either so this is um we're gonna keep talking about writing but this is a conversation I'm so grateful a few people have been honest about is that whole agent relationship Mm -hmm. and journey yeah um that you have because it's for for some writers, it's such gratitude in getting that first agent. Oh, for sure. Yeah. But th- that person may not be your agent forever because of, of something like this, where you yeah. wrote something you love and you believe in, and your agent's like, I, I can't sell this, or, or I don't believe in it. Yeah, and I think it was a radical departure for my first book. I mean, the yeah. second book is a series featuring a homosexual detective, and I don't think he was expecting that. Um, and it wasn't his cup of tea, and at the end of the day, you just have to recognize that in in truth, you do not want someone who does not love your work to be representing it because there is no worse position to be in quite frankly. Right. Um, I would rather have no agent than an agent trying to pitch a book that they didn't believe in. Right. Yeah. No. And that's exactly it because they would be pitching something they don't believe in. Mm -hmm. So chances are it wouldn't be going well. Um, so we're going to get back to that part mm-hmm. of the story, but let's talk a little bit more about your writing process. What's it like? Oh, it is a bit of a horror show. It starts with a very messy first draft. Um, I am a bit of a, a pantser, so I'm a, I have some ideas of where the story will go. Sometimes I know exactly like where it's going to end and how it starts, and I know very little about the middle. Um, I have a tendency to change characters' names mid-draft for no apparent reason. <laughs> and I find all this out when I go back, you know, in, in other drafts. But I, I keep it pretty loose um, because I've tried to outline more stringently and it, it just hasn't worked for me. I just end up abandoning what I had outlaid. So why bother? Um, and I am a firm believer in putting aside my work for some time to marinate or not distract me because the truth is I am my best critic when I have fresher eyes on it. Mm -hmm. I'm a little too self-indulgent if I look at it in two weeks. Um, so I usually let it sit for at least two months before I go back and then I get pretty, uh, ruthless. And then I have to fill in the first draft for me is really finding out what the story is. Mm -hmm. Like basically who are these people and what are they doing? And then the second draft is we'll make that sound like it makes any sense. And then the third draft is, a lot more building it up and making it cohesive and, and getting into a spot where I can share it with people, with beta readers. And then depending on their feedback, certainly another draft, maybe another two or three drafts. And then I, I might send it out for a presentation. And 
this is a long process mm-hmm. to to write write a, a novel. Uh, did you do you sort of once when you wrote your first book in a series, did the second book come more easily because you'd done so much work, or is it always a re you know re exploring? everything in that first draft, um, and, and moving. I mean, when you write a series, I wish I could say it is easier. It is and it isn't. I mean, some things you've built the world a little bit, so you don't have to reinvent the wheel. There are some things that you've established that you can rely on, but unless you want to be very boring, you have to introduce a lot more new things. Um, and for me, the second mystery, I, I had a real fascination with a particular medical condition called SEPA, which renders people immune to pain, which sounds great and is actually horrifying. And um, it turns out pain's a really good alert system for your body uh, Mm -hmm. to say, I'm injured or I'm feverish and you need to help me. So I sort of started with some like, you know, ideas, but I wasn't quite sure. And I wasn't certain that they wanted a second book until like, I kind of had to be told, (laughs) Stephanie, why why haven't you sent us a second book? like, Oh, you want one? Okay. Um, (laughs) but I did find the third was like, okay, like we know who we're dealing with now. So that was, it does get a bit easier. Um, but it is, it's, it's a different animal having written a standalone and having written a series, you know, they have their pros and their cons. Um, yeah. And written one that was non crime fiction and one that is crime fiction. And we talked, you talked a little bit about your character, but let's talk about him a little bit more. Cause that's a choice, right. As a, as, uh, to write a gay male detective is it, is that's a, that's a choice and that's a bold choice. Um, so what, what moved you towards crime fiction? Did he just show up in your brain and say, I want to, I want to be in your next book or, you know, how did you sort of move along that that path. Yeah, I found a really old note in which Thomas had been a woman detective for like all of 30 seconds. Um, but when he spoke, it was pretty much in a certain voice. Uh, the problem, the problem I had with Thomas was of all my characters that I'd ever written before, he was the least chatty. He wanted to talk to me the absolute least. He was not interested in chatting with me. And I had to like explore that and think about like, why might someone not be comfortable talking? And so um, I've told this story before, but I was really struggling like with his character, like, why is he so, you know, withholding with everyone around him and showers weren't working and walks weren't working. So I went for a run, which is a real show of desperation. And I almost tripped cause I thought, well, what if he's gay? You know, what if that's it? It's late 1990s. Um, gay cops in New England were not out then or welcome. And I thought, oh, this could explain so much about him. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that's kind of, that's where it started with. I didn't, so I'll say I didn't set out to write a gay male detective. I don't think I would have had the bravado or chutzpah to do that. I don't think I would have felt comfortable saying like, that's what I'm doing. But I was weirdly, I guess I got comfortable enough doing it that I felt okay about it. And was it because of him that it became a crime novel or, or was this a, a genre that you love to explore or did you genre. imagine killing people? Or, <laughs> you know. um, I mean, we all fantasize about killing people. Let's be honest. Anyone who has a job um, or drives in Massachusetts, Julie, you know what I'm talking about. I do know what you're talking about. Um, 
No, I loved mysteries from a very young age. I read, you know, Nancy Drew and I read Agatha Christie's without understanding British slain. So I thought they were all running around with torches. Didn't understand that was flashlights. Very confusing to a 10 year old. Um, and my mom was a big mystery reader. And so she would get me hooked. Like she would introduce me to, um, Josephine Tay and the Gallo Marsh and mm. Anne Perry. And she'd be like, read this, read this. Um, and so it had always been, always been a story like the genre is near to dear, near and dear to my heart. And it was the first book that I wrote in college was technically a mystery. Very technically. (laughs) (laughs) So, so underdeveloped. Again, you were learning. Yes. You were learning. Yes. What I learned is you don't sort of cobble together the ending and go, (laughs) ta-da! With information that the reader had not had any access to prior to this. That's a very unsatisfying way to write a mystery, by the way. Especially if you you, you know, cut your teeth on Agatha Christie and Josephine Tay and people who actually did the puzzle thing. Yes. <laughs> yes. They would haunt you for mm-hmm. doing that. Yeah. Um, well, we're still talking about writing. In, you talked about being in the incubator system and, and you've likely taken other classes. Have you gotten any great writing or terrible writing advice that uh, has stuck with you? I am sure I've gotten all of that. <laughs> more has it stuck um i think bad writing advice can sort of be summed up as anything that doesn't serve you um i do kind of hate write every day i think that's so mean people have lives and i understand the impetus to say like stay constant to your art but i truly do not believe that you have to write every day to be a writer and i think it's kind of a privileged jerk thing to say so stick that advice um (laughs) Some really great advice. Oh, golly, I am sure I've had it. And sometimes, honestly, it's it's stuff that people don't even share as advice. I watched Katrina McPherson give a talk once, and she was just talking about her writing habit, and she said she wrote 1,250 words a day. And in my brain, I went, that sounds feasible. And I think I'd been struggling with my writing a little bit. And after that, for some reason, I was like, okay, if Katrina can do it, I can do it. I can write 1,250 words a day. And that I think got me through my next novel, like just, and often I could do more than that, but I had to do that base. Right. Um, so right. sometimes it's funny the the things that people share aren't even necessarily given in the spirit of advice, but I think, Ooh, that sounds, that sounds smart. That sounds good. Yeah. This person writes well, maybe I will steal their process. And also recognizing that sometimes you, your process has worked for you before, but maybe you need to do something different because it's not working this time. I absolutely am a big fan of pivoting to whatever is working for you. Um, I used to be more precious about my writing too. Like I was like, light a candle, do this, do that. And now I'm like, look, if you got 15 minutes and you're on the subway, you write that. (laughs) You get it done when you can. Um, Because if you're waiting for the muse to strike, or if you're, if you are limiting yourself to a set of circumstances, that is a limit that you're imposing on yourself. And that's not a great idea. Right. Right. So that's such an important thing to let people know too. Yeah. Um, 
do what works for you. And if you can grab 15 minutes, grab them. That's what the write-ins you've hosted Mm write-ins, you know, I host them, uh, for sister in crime every month for members. And that's the gift is you've got 25 minutes and we're all going to do something together. And people are usually amazed at what they can do with that concentrated effort. And so do that for yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I love the sense of community that those write-ins. I love hearing about what people did, um, what they achieved, what they struggled with. It's as writers, we are often writing alone, uh, particularly during this past year. And I think having just a sense of like the scope of the members and and the togetherness has been really beautiful. Mm -hmm. And supporting each other and cheering each other on. I couldn't agree more. So Thomas has come to you and explained why he's hesitant to talk <laughs> and you've, you've had your aha moment and, um, and in the understanding, he's been willing to sort of give you enough inspiration to write a book. Yep. What was the publishing journey like for that? So that one, I didn't have an agent anymore because I knew this was the book I wanted to go with and he didn't want it. And he like very he was, he's a very sweet man. He like very kindly, like sort of pushed me to break up with him. So we broke up. It's very amicable. Um, and then I had to find another agent, which I had not planned on having to do. I thought I've got the manuscript. I've got an agent. Here I go. And I was like, Oh, okay. I guess we're going back to step one. So I, um, I found my agent through one of my instructors. Um, but I also sent queries and I actually got my first agent through a cold query. So I truly do believe that if you have a good cover letter and a good first three chapters and you've written a solid novel, don't buy into the myth that you have to meet people in person. You do not. Um, I do worry that people are paying too much money at conferences sometimes. Um, so I want you, I want you all to save your dollars (laughs) because writing is not a lucrative field for most of us. This is the finance part of me. I jump in with advice. It's like, this is a terrible financial decision you're making. (laughs) Um, But so I had to find another agent. I found another agent. Um, She loved Thomas. So that was great. And then we just, you know, we, we pitched it and um, the editor who ended up taking it was very enthusiastic about Thomas. Um, But it was very funny because when it kind of came time to be like, yeah, we're, you know, he's gonna, he's gonna buy it. He's gonna make the offer <laughs> right after that. He was like, so in the manuscript, I had a ghost that ghost is not in this book, but, and it surprises people to hear that, but there was a ghost and she was very active. She was the murder victim, Cecilia, and she, um, had strong opinions and she was actually in antagonism. Uh-huh. She was the antagonist to Thomas because she thought he'd killed her. They'd met the night that she died. And my editor rightly pointed out, he said, well, if you're going to write a sequel, what happens to Cecilia? And I said, well, nothing happens to Cecilia. Like, you know, her case has been solved. She's moved on to wherever she goes. And he said, well, that might be a problem because people who like supernaturals are not going to be happy to see that she's not in the second book. And people who never picked up the book in the first place because it was supernatural won't know to pick up the second book. And for about 12 minutes, I panicked. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, that is some solid advice. That's really smart. And I have to get rid of her. And she's the second biggest character in the book. So I had a pity party in my office at work, my shared office at work for about 12 minutes. Yeah. And then I just started writing down 
every scene Cecilia appeared in and every bit of crucial information she fed Thomas. And then how could I get him that information in some other way? Yeah. Did you ever consider having a a new ghost in the next book or having Cecilia as a sidekick? No, it just didn't feel authentic to me. Like Cecilia was Cecilia, but at the end of the day, Thomas mattered more. And I didn't set out to write a supernatural series. I wasn't sure that's what I wanted. So I, I chose to get rid of her. It was very funny though. Cause my agent actually said, so is she a ghost or is she a ghost ghost? Is she gone or is she gone, gone? <laughs> I said, she's gone, gone. What an interesting thing to learn. Yeah. Yeah. Did, and that, because that's challenging to write a ghost and dialogue, you know, and I'm sure exercising her, forgive the pun, from the manuscript was challenging. Do you ever think about having that no, combination? No, I am. Of, that bitch who does not go back and resuscitate her darlings in any way. I know some people struggle with that or they'll be like, Oh, I'll use this for another scene. I keep a list of cut scenes, but only so that if I need to go back and see like what they were doing, I don't miss anything. I keep them, but they are dead to me. I (laughs) will. You're gone. Once you're gone, you're gone. And I, you know, you served your time. You, it was great. This was a wonderful relationship. But we're done. But you are out of my phone contacts forever. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you really delete. Oh yeah, I'm like new phone yeah. who dis. <laughs> and I'm always a little. It's one of those things, and this happens to all writers. Where I'm sure the the plotters are just like, oh, panthers, what's wrong with you? But I have a certain amount of like, huh, that's so weird to me that people get attached in a way, and and I can understand it, but I kind of can't. I'm just like, no, get rid of it. (laughs) Of course, this is going to, you realize you've cursed yourself. And at some point you're going to come up in the next few months, you're going to be working on something. Oh, Oh, how dare you? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) So your publishing journey has been interesting. Oh, it continues to be interesting, Julie. (laughs) (laughs) It does continue to be interesting. What about it has surprised you? Oh, golly. Um, so much. I mean, I think, I think the publishing landscape has changed, you know, since I was a kid and was like, Mm -hmm. writers are rock stars. And, you know, like depending on the writer, you might have more of a publicity budget and you might actually tour. and, And those things are not as common nowadays. Um, the publishing houses have changed, you know, like houses I once would for some reason, when I was a little girl, I was like, I'm going to be published by so-and-so, you know, they've been devoured by one of the big five. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I had read Anne Lamott bird by bird. So I knew that no one was ever going to think I was famous. That was, thank you. Anne Lamott very much for that yeah. because true. And in the very rare instances when I'm recognized from like someone had seen me do a reading the prior night and recognizes me on the subway or something, I am always so floored and taken aback. I'm like, why do you know me? (laughs) (laughs) Freaks me out a little. Um, So, but I also think, I mean, there's just so much to publishing and writing. And I think I probably naively did not understand that a lot of it is luck and timing and and, personal choice. Like Mm -hmm. I thought, oh, if you can write a book, you know, maybe it'll get published, but you know, there's millions of people writing books and some of them are really good. Lots of them are really good. So 
you know, nothing is, nothing is granted or given. You're not guaranteed to be published. Even if you decide to go the indie route, mm-hmm. just as an aside, because several people I talk to are, are on that yeah. journey, it's not, nothing's a given. No. And you still have, that means that you're running the business all yourself. So you're going to be editing and cover art and back cover copy and everything else yourself. Yeah. And there's no guarantee of success. It's just so much about publishing is out of your control. Yeah. And, and I think indie authors are honestly better at like marketing and chasing those readers and like really building a like readership, which I think is amazing. That is not my strength. Um, sales was never my strength. I dropped out while I was a brownie. So I never had to be a girl scout and try to sell cookies and I would have been terrible at it. Stephanie, uh, and I, I will say this because I'm one as well. You are a true New Englander, my friend. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, what do you wish you'd known sooner about the publishing journey? Oh, I wish I'd known I should have written mysteries just off off the bat because I will say I think um, when I came with my first novel, I did find some people to like be my writer friends with after I went to a conference, but when you just write fiction, if you're not writing within a genre, you don't have this community. So like, you know, romance writers have a community and mystery writers have a community in sci-fi and horror, even Westerns. But, um, and I think that community is huge. Um, and I just found crime writers to be so giving and thoughtful and kind and generous with their time. Honestly, I kind of wished I'd reverse the clock and been like, oh, golly, I wish I'd met you all, you know, a decade earlier. Um, what else did I wish I knew? Have backup titles. Mm-hmm. Honestly, um, that's that's a thing that surprises people is that you can have a, you know, you can have a great title and marketing at your publisher or, you know, someone will tell you, nope, this doesn't work. Okay. And you should probably have backups. Yeah. Side note, you should probably not come up on those with those backups after you've injured your back and are on painful meds. That's just a tip <laughs> that I made. Then, then you're married to whatever idea you came up with in that moment and you have to act pleased that they said yes to it. In that one case, the strongest title I had my mother had actually given me and that was the one they picked. Thank God. <laughs> um, so you just talked about community a little bit and, and the crime writing community is a, is a wonderful community. Um, it's surprising because there are such violent books or, you know, mm-hmm. death is the center of a lot of them. Um, and yet the people who write them are, are generally really good people. Yeah. Um, and it's a strong community. How did you find your way into the community? Did you join uh, Sisters in Crime right away? Did you find it later? Tell me about your, your building community. So at the time um, of my first book, it was coming out with 7th Street. And um, they told me that their authors had a private Facebook page. And it, you know, no one from the company was part of it. So no one would be like looking at what we were talking about. And so um, somebody told one of them like, hey, can you invite Stephanie? And at the time I wasn't on Facebook. The only reason I joined Facebook was so I could be part of this author's club. <laughs> and I wrote to them and I said, you know, what sh- this is my first mystery novel. What should I do? What conferences should I go to? And I'm sure Lori Raider Day was part of the cohort that told me join Sisters in Crime, um, join NWA, someone said, and then um, here are some conferences you're going to want to think about attending. 
And that, that Facebook group was just a really great source of information. And in New England here, there's the New England Crime Bank, which is a mm-hmm. local conference, um, but there are national conferences for readers, and then there's some for writers. And so they both serve their different, um, their different points in your life or their different purposes. Did you have a particular conference that was the first conference you went to where you met other people and were like, oh. <laughs> so I think, I don't know whether the first one I ever went to as an author was the Midwest Literary Festival, which doesn't exist. And I'm sure that has nothing to do with me. (laughs) The first one I attended was probably Grub Street's Muse and Marketplace, which Mm -hmm. has a focus on craft and also has a focus very much on industry. Um, The first crime conference I attended, oh golly, I don't remember which one came first. It might have been BoucherCon just because Mm -hmm. it happens before crime Mm bake on the calendar. Um, that was a little overwhelming to me. I do remember hiding in my hotel room and tweeting something about hiding in my hotel room. And Chris Holm was like, you need to leave your hotel room. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but you know, I didn't, I didn't know that many people and it was a lot of people. It was like 1400 people. And I wasn't quite prepared for that amount. Um, cause music marketplace is not that large and crime Bake, as you know, is not that large. Um, so I think crime Bake was nice because it does feel a lot more intimate. It feels a little bit more, um, less daunting, uh, possibly for a newbie or, you know, most writers are introverts. So it, it takes a lot to be on at that level with that many people. Well, and Crime Bake is a writing conference, so it's for writers, whereas Bouchicon's a fan conference. So there are a lot of writers there. And you can find your, your friends, yep. but there's also a lot of readers. True. Yep. So you, you have to be wearing your author hat while you're about your con, <laughs> you know, have your bookmarks ready to go and, and do all that. And 1400 people is a lot of people. And, you know, it's, it's an action packed four or five days. My first about your con I went to, I, it, it was just overwhelming how many people were doing things in there, you know? Yeah. And that was my first window into, oh my God, so many of these people are crime writers. Oh, this is terrible. <laughs> there are too many of us. How am I ever going to make a living at this? Yeah. Oh, that would actually be a really good mystery. Yeah. That would be terrible. That would be grim. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably been done. Um, so let's talk about Sisters in Crime, in, uh, you know, specifically before you took on the role of vice president, you served on the national board as the grants uh, liaison. Is that yep. uh, grants and yep. I, there's something else, um, but grants liaison. So you'd been working on that for a couple of years and then um, became vice president um, this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so what's being called to service for Sisters in Crime is different than being a member. And we have 60 chapters and people in leadership there. And it's, it's work to, to, you know, volunteer to help run an organization. What, why did you step forward and say, um, when they sent out a call for the grants position, why did you say, yeah, I'll serve. I'm, I'm happy to do that. I think I thought that sounds nice. I haven't really done any volunteer work recently for an organization. I'd love this organization. Um, and I had that weird, um, imposter syndrome moment where I was like, can I do this? And I was like, you're an idiot. Of course you can. 
you used to work at the Guggenheim Foundation. You have a strong finance background. You have given money to people in the past. Like this is not outside of your wheelhouse. So I applied um, and was delighted to get it. I mean, you know, giving money to people who are a little in the beginning of their career or, you know, emerging Mm -hmm. writers, just interacting with them is a delight. And then, you know, when someone wins, they're just delighted and over the moon. And that's always just a joy to witness and interact with. Um, and they're so grateful. And I'm like, I didn't make this money for you. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I, I really, really enjoyed that. And then when I was, um, asked to be vice president, which is the understanding that you'll become president and then immediate past president. Um, I was not very gracious in my response. (laughs) <laughs> I'd like to think I was probably the least gracious incoming president that has ever accepted the position. I screamed at Sandra, no, no, what is wrong with you? Why would I do that? <laughs> and then during the course of our conversation, I, I came to realize I, I might like it very much. So, um, we're, we're, you know, in case there are future presidents listening to this, we're not going (laughs) to, we're not going to focus on the, why you said no. Um, but what about it? Or we could, (laughs) (laughs) because it is, I mean, right. As we're recording this, there are over 4,000 members of system crime. As I said, 60 chapters, it's a, it's a not small organization. Um, and it's been, we're celebrating our 35th year in 2020, 2022. I find that very hard, hard to say, say. Um, which is exciting, but it's also, there's so much that's been done and so much to do. And the organization is, is embracing change and moving forward while, while maintaining its roots mm-hmm. in such a great way. Um, what, what excites you about being an incoming president? Oh, I mean, there's, there's a lot. I think the work that we're doing right now around DEI is incredibly important and exciting. I think watching the membership grow has been amazing. I think watching us pivot during a global pandemic to serve our members in ways that were new and meaningful, having the write-ins, um, the chapters hosting Zoom meetings so that people could attend and finding that they were growing members in some cases because people who are physically remote often could not commute to the meetings when they were held, um, you know, physically in person. Uh, and given our very large country, that is not surprising. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think uh, there's much work to be done, but I think we're doing really solid, solid work. Um, and I think we serve people. And I think we've been offering some kick-ass webinars with really great speakers I've been learning things which have excited me about my own writing. Jess Lowry's um, editing workshop is truly responsible for much yeah. of the good work being done on this current draft that I'm writing. So, I mean, honestly, if that was the only thing I got out of an entire year's membership, it would be well worth it. But I've gotten so much more than that. Wait, 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 wait there's more. <laughs> In addition to these steak knives, you also get a community. And, you know, that community, it's, it's, I am looking forward to being president because I think I'll meet more people. And normally I'm not the biggest people person, to be, to be fair. Pandemic, I kept saying, I miss people. No, I take that back. I miss very specific people. <laughs> but 
but I do, I am kind of excited to looking forward to learning more because each chapter is different and, you know, their constituencies are different. Some of their purposes are different. The guppies is going to be different than, you know, NorCal. So I'm excited to learn more because on the board, just in the, the past few years that I've been serving, I'm always finding out things about the organization that I just never knew. And you might not know unless you have to interact with the history in a way that is necessary in governance, but there's some really fascinating stuff. There is some fascinating stuff. And, and uh, I mean, I don't, I'm not going to put you on the spot, but if something specific about the history of the organization stands out to you, feel free to jump in um, with it. But I think how but, casually it began sort of, you know, it wasn't as though a bunch of people got together and had like a very formal meeting. It sort of erupted from need. And that's always mm-hmm. interesting to see. And I think a lot of great organizations do erupt from need. They see something and they say, that's not right. And this is what we're going to do. And that's pretty much how Sisters in Crime started. Um, and I think I, I, I really like the idea of that. It started for folks who don't know the history. There was a VoucherCon conference and a meeting at the bar of several women who said, we, we're not getting the same um, press. We're not getting the same number of reviews. We're not getting the same kind of promotion. What are we going to do about it? And so that's that was the informal starting, which actually, this is the 35th year of that meeting. <laughs> um, and then from that became an organization. There's a uh, story that I love that Sarah Paretsky stepped forward and said, I'll, you know, I'll be the first president. But Margaret Marin sent her like two rolls of stamps to help her with the mailings and to get things done. And I've had conversations with other past presidents of the organization who remember, you know, Kate Mattis from Kate's Mystery Bookstore, which oh, was yeah. in Cambridge, reaching out to them as writers and saying, you have to join this organization because she was one of the founders who was so believed in it that became her mission as well. It's like let's get let's get more members and many bookstore owners and many librarians did that as well because it just was an idea that that took off and that people really embraced. Plus, librarians and bookstore people are the best people. They are such an important part of the um, the the community and and the way authors get their books out there, but also the support for each other, um, is also tremendous. Yeah. It's, it's, it's all good. And Sisters in Crime also for folks who don't know has, uh, we love bookstores and we love libraries, um, newsletters that go out once a month and we have grants, um, to bookstores and to libraries. They each are given every other month, um, they rotate, but um, we, we do what we can to support librarians at bookstores across, well, not just the United States. We're in Canada and, and Europe as well. So it's, That's right. Um, we are extending our global reach. Here we are, 12 time zones. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what are you reading right now, Stephanie? Oh, golly. This is going to sound quasi-pretentious, and I apologize in advance because this isn't my typical reading fair, but I'm going to be honest with you. I am reading a book called Death in the Air, The True Story of a Serial Killer, The Great London Smog, and the Strangling of a City by Kate Winkler Dawson. It is a fascinating examination of post-World War II um, Britain economy and how their reliance on really cheap coal 
led to a terrible smog that killed about 12,000 of its citizenry during the same time that John Reginald Christie, the serial killer, was operating. I find myself so much less interested in the serial killer bits. And I'm like, tell me more about this waging war in Parliament over smog. Because at the time, air pollution wasn't really a recognized phenomenon. And um, it's just, it's, it's really interesting. In general, I read mostly fiction. Um, and before that, I think the last uh, fiction I had re- read was a, a mermaid horror novel. <laughs> a mermaid horror novel. Yes. <laughs> That's quite the mashup. Mm-hmm. I loved it. It was. It reminded me of Crichton, um, but it 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 involved an entertainment company, and that that specializes in uh, these like quasi fake documentaries, like The Hunt for Bigfoot, and they happen to they happen to find mermaids, but it turns out the mermaids are not nice. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> and so they end up devouring the crew. And then the world is like, this was just a hoax. And so they sent a second expedition years later. And the book is like all about that. Ooh. I enjoyed it. Sounds, it. <laughs> it sounds great. It does sound like Crichton. Mm-hmm. Crichton in 2021. <laughs> oh, God. I'm going to have to find her name, though, because now I've seen, I've mentioned his name and I haven't mentioned her name. And as a ardent feminist there, I use the F word. I have to find her name. <laughs> <laughs> but don't worry, I keep a spreadsheet of all the books I read. Her name is Mira Grant, and it's called In the Drowning Deep. All right. Um, In the Drowning Deep, Mira Grant. Mm-hmm. I'm going to put this uh, in the show notes, and I'll also put um, the other things you've mentioned in the show notes so that people can access them. Um, and thank you for that. Yeah. So next for you is as of October 1st, you're going to be – um, the president of Sister in Crime, there's a lot of work that's being done up until then um, as vice president. But um, October 2nd, you are hosting a Sink into Great Writing event, uh, which will be a four-hour series of workshops. We do these twice a year, really helping people with craft. Um, and so I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, look well. at me. Second day of my presidency, and I am just... <laughs> Knocking it out. <laughs> it's a it's a good thing to to knock out for sure. So I'll I'll put in a link to that as well. Um, Stephanie, thank you so much for a great conversation, and thank you for your service to Sisters in Crime. Oh golly, you're welcome. <laughs> thank you for being with us today. Sisters in Crime is about community. We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. Sisters in Crime is an international, inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast. <laughs>